Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. As Chief Business Officer of NanoSyrinx, James Lapworth plays a key role in developing a truly novel solution to the delivery problem faced by biotech researchers around the world. James joined us to talk about how he built a career in the commercial side of drug R&D, what nanosyringes are, and the role of a chief business officer in a startup biotech. This week, I am delighted to be joined by James Lapworth of Nanosyrinx. James, welcome to Careers in Discovery. Hi, Tom. It's really good to be here. Good to see you. So I, I am fascinated, James, to talk more about nanosyrinx and, and the work that you're doing there. So as, as usual, let's start there. Um, tell me about protein nanosyringes and the work that you're doing with them. Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, nanosyrinx is a, a very early stage, discovery stage biotech company based at the University of Warwick in the UK Midlands. Um, and we're using synthetic biology approaches mm. to develop a new class of biologic therapeutics. Um, and this class is something that we call nanosyringes. They're made of protein. Uh, and I can explain a bit more about kind of what these are a bit later. Yes, uh, but just to kind of finish the company story off, we mm. um, the company was spun out uh, in 2020 out of the uh, Warwick Medical School based on uh, PhD research uh, by a chap called Joe Healy, who's mm -hmm. now the founder and CEO. Uh, and before that, there was about 10 years worth of academic research, fundamental science that went into identifying these protein complexes in nature in a yes. very rare bacterium. Um, so the company got spun out in 2020, um, and we're very lucky to have got some really early stage interest, well, early stage investment support from some pretty big hitting investors. Mm -hmm. uh, so just to kind of name drop a few, we have M Ventures, which is the corporate uh, VC arm of Merck, German Merck, who came in very early um, alongside BioCity and the UK I2S seed fund, uh, who fund synthetic biology companies. Mm -hmm. um, and then following that, we had a big, much bigger seed round, which we raised last summer in July, uh, which was co-led by Octopus Ventures in the yeah. UK, uh, as well as Jonathan Milner and uh, IQ Capital, both based in Cambridge. Um, so we've got something that we think is really unique. And we've mm. got something that we've managed to persuade these, you know, very discerning investors um, yes. has the potential to be quite a big opportunity. Um, so since closing the round last year, we built the team, went out to about 11, well, 11 full-time staff plus advisors and NEDs. Um, and because we've got such discerning investors, we've now got a pretty ambitious plan mm -hmm. <laughs> that we need to deliver sure. on over the next couple <laughs> of years to prove that what we said is is, is really going to deliver some value to them. Yeah. Um, and it's really, I suppose, that the reason that they're so interested, the reason they've come in so early is just because of the problem that we're trying to solve, like how how difficult essentially it is to get biological molecules inside cells. Yes. Um, so this is a problem <clears throat> that we like to call the undruggable cell, or other people have called it a delivery problem. Mm -hmm. um, and a kind of in simple terms, the, the the idea is that almost all of the interesting biology that goes on within a human is inside the cell. 
Right. Yes. Um, and the, the sort of estimates vary quite a lot, but um, it's thought that somewhere between eighty and eighty-five percent of potential drug targets are inside cells rather okay. than outside. Yeah. Um, and this is a really inaccessible place for most biologic molecules. Um, so historically, when most drugs are small molecules, this wasn't so much of a problem. Mm-hmm. Things were designed so that they penetrated cells. Um, but a lot of the targets that people are trying to modulate now, you need a biologic approach to get there. Yes. And most of the biotech and pharma industry is moving towards antibodies and more, more complex biologic therapeutics to try and interact with these targets. Yes. So most of these targets are proteins or potentially DNA, and most of them are pretty hard to access using these biological molecules. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge kind of interest now in being able to take these antibodies, nanobodies, other biologic modalities, and get them inside the cell to get to all of these other targets, all these interesting targets, which have the potential to really modify disease. Mm. Um, and there are lots of really smart people working on this. There are some really well-funded startups working on this. You've had some of them on your program already. Yes. Um, and consequently, there's a big interest from investors in getting in to these companies early um, and trying to access some of this huge potential market if mm. these companies can crack the problem. Um, there's also a huge amount of interest in big pharma. So we um, very early on... Um, in the sort of life cycle of the company before the company got going, we spent a lot of time talking to industry, talking to big pharma and, yeah. and, you know, trying to work out if this was a real problem or not. And we, we realized quite quickly that there's again, a huge demand from the industry to be able to take the molecules that they're generating um, and use them to hit these intracellular targets. Yes. So, yeah, so there's a there's a really wide range of different approaches now that are coming forward trying to solve this. Um, some of them are pretty simple. So it's kind of simple, and you have things like cell penetrating peptides mm-hmm. or um, liposomes or polymer micelles that are really well controlled, like in terms of chemistry. Um, and then at the more complex end, you've got things like exosomes. Mm. You've got things like um, using whole cells, whole bacterial cells, or whole mammalian cells, even T cells, to try and deliver compounds to specific cells in the body to treat disease yes um and what we are doing which we think is unique is that we we think we've kind of found the sweet spot in the middle of that spectrum okay um when i say we this is work done by joe and nick (laughs) over many many years but what they found is a very uh, elegant natural uh, protein complex called an extracellular Contract, contractile injection system, mm-hmm. which we now call nanosyringes because it's much easier to say. <laughs> um, and and these things, <laughs> these things look a bit like a bacteriophage, uh, or they look a bit like a very simple virus, and that they're a, a protein tube, yeah. uh, which has binding arms at one end. And for the people who aren't watching this, because it's uh, a podcast, <laughs> I'm waving my arms up in the air um, because. Um, so these things have binding arms which stick to cells mm-hmm. in a specific way and then they inject the payload, the protein payload across the membrane into the cytoplasm where it can go and do its, its work. Yes. So, um, so in nature, these things are used uh, by bacteria to influence um, 
whatever animal that they're trying to infect potentially okay. so they they have a really wide range of different effectors including toxins but also uh, more subtle factors that manipulate the host that they're trying to infect mm. um, and the really smart thing uh, that that joe and nick found was that there's a very wide range of different effectors but most of the complex in terms of genetics and in terms of the protein that builds it is is conserved Okay. And they were able to identify the particular genes which code for the payload and which code for the binding to target cells. I see. Okay. Um, and that essentially is the is what underpins the nanosyrinx platform. So mm. we can now manipulate these things to load whatever payload we choose and to de deliver it to specific cell types. And our proposition is therefore to use that as a very broadly applicable platform technology to deliver protein therapeutics to cells of interest yes interesting i didn't realize it was such a high proportion of potential targets that were were inside the cell actually so I, i'm assuming then that as you as you've touched on this is kind of therapeutically agnostic it's more just about the target rather than the condition that that people are trying to deliver to it, it is and that's um that that's partly a blessing and partly a curse <laughs> because it, it means that there's just this huge range of potential applications. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I should, I should say like early on that we're, we're very early in terms of developing this as a therapeutic and we still have a lot of work to do in terms of, um, in terms of delivery and in terms of the in vivo performance of these, these complexes. Um, mm. We've got a lot of exciting work underway now, uh, which is going to start to help us, hopefully to narrow down the range of applications. Um, but yeah, there's, um, you're potentially you know, able to address a very wide range of diseases. Um, the limitation really is just understanding the disease biology well enough, yes. understanding the targets well enough and coming up with a smart enough, com uh, smart enough combination of the payload and the cell targeting um, and making sure you deliver the right dose of that thing to the right cell to have a yeah, modifying yeah, yeah. effect. Of course. So this is, I mean, this is a true partnership model you're going to have to operate here, I take it, in that you can't, it's not just, here's a target and here's a compound, sort it out. Um, you have to really intrinsically work with the research teams at, at the partner companies and really get their understanding of the disease and partner it with your understanding of the mechanism. And um, there's a real collaboration that needs to take place there, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's kind of the reason that my role exists <laughs> within the company. So it's it's probably a bit unusual for a seed stage company at this <laughs> early stage to have a chief business officer sure um but because of how because of the scope of the opportunity um the, the business model has to be around partnering so mm. we we realized very early on that um w in order to maximize the value of the platform or, or even in order to maximize our chances of having one win, you know, one success, yeah. we need to work with whoever the smartest people are in any given area of disease biology. But we also need to work with organizations who have the resources and the kind of know-how and the capability to take compounds into the clinic and out the other side onto the market. Yes. Um, and, and that means we essentially we need to be prepared to partner with big pharma companies from a very, very early stage, mm -hmm. uh, which means we need to build those relationships from a very early stage uh, and, and to understand really what their needs are and which areas of disease biology they're interested in, um, which models 
uh, which proof of concept models we need to do in-house to persuade them that we've got something that works because mm. uh, there'd be nothing worse than spending all of this investor's money building a bunch of proof of concept data and then going out at the end to find out that nobody believes what we've That's, done yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so understanding all that up front is really key yes yeah it's interesting so this <laughs> is one of the things i was going to ask you about as, as we touched on earlier the the scope of your role and i suppose We'll, we'll come on to how you got here and, and where you came from as well. But you are, of course, a, a scientist by training. Um, it's interesting. There's more and more of these positions where you can't separate commercial and, and research responsibilities in a lot of companies these days. You've got to be guided by what the market's saying to direct your research. And then, of course, your research has to direct your commercial activity. So it's an interesting um, chicken and egg type situation, I think, in, in a lot of companies these days. But, I mean, tell us a bit about what you spend your time on, James. What what does your role see you doing most of, and, and how does you know how do your how does your time get filled? Yeah. Um, so I guess like like any leadership role in a startup, well, like like almost any role in a startup, it's quite hard to define the boundaries. Um, sure. Yeah. There are very few days are the same, and there, there's always something different. You know, a new challenge that comes along that. Mm. Uh, it changes what your time is spent on but and, and and a lot of the stuff i do on a day-to-day basis overlaps quite a lot with joe with our ceo right um but my i suppose uh, my particular areas of responsibility the things i kind of lead on are um so as we talked about already a bit partnering strategy so it's my job to make sure that we we understand and we have a kind of uh under constant review what potential big pharma partners are looking for yeah what data sets they're looking for which disease areas they're interested in uh what kind of depth of science they need to see or data they need to see before they'll engage with us um so so part of that is a a kind of traditional business development manager role Mm -hmm. i I spend a fair bit of time out on the road uh, doing events uh going to partnering events uh presenting um just talking to as many people as I can in the industry yes. uh, to make sure that we're, we're, we're constantly reviewing and doing the right things. Um, the other aspects are I'm responsible for essentially all, um, anything to do with legal, anything to do with IP. So I look after all of the contracts. Uh, I, look, I look after all commercial negotiations with potential partners, mm-hmm. uh, but also the, a very wide range of suppliers and CROs who we also depend on to make sure that we're doing things to the right standards. Yeah. Um, and then there's a sort of more strategic level, um, which is, I guess, why it's the CBO role and not the BDM role, mm-hmm. um, which is really to be thinking um, I guess the kind of one year to three years ahead at any given time. Uh, so, so thinking where where does the company need to be um, by the t- by uh, by twelve months time? Where does it need to yes. be at the end of this funding round? What is the next trying? What, what are the next set of investors going to be looking for when we go out trying to raise our Series A at the back end of twenty twenty three? And that overlaps to some extent with what pharma partners are looking for but Mm -hmm. but but not completely um so i spend quite a bit of time um in the future i guess think thinking about where we need to get to um and trying to match that up to where we are now um and making sure that the timelines and the costings and the resources that we have are all realistic Mm. um and i suppose on on a more 
day-to-day basis um that trickles down to quite a lot of interactions with investors generally so yes. that, that that includes our current board um so i i do quite a lot of work around um preparing for boards and following up with boards and and interacting with our current investors to make sure that we're doing the right things and that everybody's kind of expectations remain aligned mm-hmm. um but also uh i spend quite a bit of time talking to potential new investors and working out you know, what they would need to see uh to come in and lead our series a route for example um and again like like the farmer partnerships um those things change. So you can't yes. just have a conversation now and then go and pitch to them in 18 months time. You, you need to be talking all the time because their priorities change, their ambition mm. changes. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's good. That, that's a part of a job I really enjoy. There's the, um, the people side and it's something yeah. that's, I suppose, one of the things that made me want to step a bit out of the lab bench career and, uh, and move fairly quickly from my PhD into a more commercial role. Yes, makes sense. Uh, and we will come back to that in just a second. I, I suppose what you're describing though, is, it's really interesting because it's, we see a lot of biotech companies who they don't really think about what's going on in the market until they get to a certain point with their research, you know, and, and often, not often, but sometimes that, that, uh, <laughs> that point is, at a point where they can't turn back the clock on their research and you suddenly find out that actually someone else has done this or the market's not that interested in it or actually the data you've been gathering is not the data it's not the question that needs answering from a partner's point of view so getting that in from the beginning um i guess the idea is to to make sure you're you're putting the comp- positioning the company in the right way around this this platform that you're developing but also bearing in mind what what other people might use it for yeah um and i mean i suppose the, the other aspect of it is that um we we've touched on a bit already is that the the competitive landscape is also mm. always changing yes so um i mean when when we first started thinking about this um and we, we'll, we'll sort of come back to this when we get to my career story but i um i i joined the company full time in november last year uh, so i think i was full time employee number 4 or something right. like that um uh, but before that I spent about five years working with the founding team uh, within the University of Warwick uh, mm-hmm. as their tech transfer guy. Um, so we've been sort of thinking about this as a, an opportunity for quite some time. And um, yeah, we, we've, we've noticed certainly over the past 12 months or so, maybe a bit longer, <clears throat> um, more and more companies are kind of emerging in this space and there are yes. more solutions coming to market well not to market more solutions um being funded mm-hmm. um, more solutions that are getting investment uh, to try and solve this problem so the the other aspect is you need to be constantly working out what everybody else is doing as, as far as you can yes. um and polishing your you know there's a story around how you're differentiated how you can be different and potentially better um yeah <laughs> yeah no it's, it's interesting really interesting role i imagine you you get a lot of uh get into a lot of very interesting conversations with people <laughs> um so so let's talk a bit about how you ended up here james and and your journey to to this role you've touched on some of it there um am i right in thinking you're a chemist originally yes that's right yes. yeah 
So wh why, to start with, I suppose, why chemistry? Why science in general? Why why the commercial activities around that? What were the sort of driving forces behind wanting to do this kind of career? Yeah, uh, that's a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially a very long answer. Sure. Um, so I, I suppose I um I I got interested in science generally, and then I guess in in kind of nature mm. originally, like from a very young age. So like like lots of people from my generation and generations before and after, I grew up watching the David Attenborough documentaries yeah. and really becoming fascinated and enthralled by by nature and the natural world, but also um, just. Uh, this sort of knowledge that that was imparted by this this wise man you mm. know and um so i from a very early age like i i was really interested in science from that perspective i was really interested in learning more and more about how the world worked um and um that sort of fed through into my at, at school i was kind of very interested in science i was I found that i was quite good at science i found it yeah. easy to learn and easy to understand i think because it was you know a passion and mm. I had some good teachers. Um, and I suppose all the way through my, uh, but but at that point, yeah, it wasn't really a consideration that this might be a career at any point. Um, and that, that really only came to the forefront of my mind when I started thinking about universities. And um, course, yeah. my, uh, for my, my dad in particular, so I, I'm the first person in my family to go to university. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, so they were very keen if I was going to spend three years studying and accumulating debt, um, that I should do something that's going to be useful and lead to a career in the end. Right, yes. Uh, so we, we had, I guess, a bit of a debate at the time or maybe an argument or two about, you know, whether I could <laughs> go off and be a biologist or whether I should be a chemist because I was, mm -hmm. you know, I enjoyed both things. Um, and, um, I suppose I, I was still thinking there might be some world in which I could go out and, just explore the world and you know learn about nature and, and that'd be my right, career right, but my yeah. my dad is a much more practical and experienced <laughs> person um so, you know chemistry is the way forward because that's you know it's really practical it's useful there's a there's huge industry out there um and you know you're, you're it's definitely going to lead to a career at the end of it so it's worth spending those three years at university um and it's quite funny to look back on now because I haven't really, uh, until quite recently, ever left <laughs> the university ecosystem, right, and I'm yes. still pretty connect closely connected with it now. So thinking that you know that three years out, getting a degree, <laughs> uh, was going to be a problem. It's, it's quite funny, but so 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 the, the compromise in the end was that I um I found somewhere that I could do a dual honors degree, and I did biology and chemistry in parallel. Yes, I see. And um and so we kind of both got our way, um, <clears throat> but I suppose. As I yeah, as I was going through my undergrad, um, I came across an opportunity to do a year in industry mm. uh, with a uh, with a company called ICI Paints, which doesn't really exist anymore. It's been no. taken over. It was at the time a very big organisation and a part of ICI, which was a huge chemical industry at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and so my 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 undergrad wasn't wasn't going to design to have a sandwich placement, but I came across the opportunity, applied for the job, and ended up going and spending a year um essentially learning polymer chemistry and learning about emulsions yeah. and learning how to to make paints and my particular research project was about how to make paint dry 
a bit more slowly, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which um, involved quite a lot of interesting science, Mm. but it it kind of made me realize that, you know, industrial chemistry wasn't really where I wanted to be. Yeah, okay. Um, So I I really enjoyed working in a big organization. I really enjoyed working part of a team, uh, working somewhere that had a real kind of mission and a clear Mm -hmm. objective. You know, you were going to develop a product which was going to go on the shelf and it was going to make money. Um, And that's when I started to learn about, uh, you know, how research in those, in commercial organizations work, in large organizations work, uh, as well as things like, you know, IP and protecting inventions yes. and things like that. So I came out of that year with a few lessons. Um, one, one was that I, as, as fascinating as the science was, I didn't want to work on paint mm-hmm. the rest of my career. It wasn't where my passion, <laughs> passion was. Uh, I really wanted to do something that was um, m- more helpful to society, like, yeah. and particularly to human, in terms of human health. And that, that kind of steered me back in that direction. Um, but also, I realized that if I wanted to go and have a career in industry, um, I really needed a PhD to be able to do that if yeah, I okay. wanted to not get stuck at this glass ceiling level within within a commercial organization. So um, went back to finish my undergrad uh, and then started looking at PhD programs where I could use what I'd learned already around polymer chemistry and um, <clears throat> uh yeah, polymer chemistry, but apply it to biological systems. Um, and I came across a really great project at Sheffield, um, which was which was creating these reversible 3D gelling systems uh, to grow cartilage outside the body okay. <clears throat> with, yeah. the, with the ultimate aim of being able to... Um, I, I'm, the term isn't really used so much anymore, but tissue engineering was, yes. the, was the kind of the thing at the time. And um, I think I'd partly been inspired by seeing the the very famous mouse with the ear on its back Mm -hmm. which had been uh the robert langer experiment which had been had been in the news quite recently and i was fascinated by this idea that you could use material science to influence biology and to recreate bits of the body that had worn out or that needed replacing yeah i see um and i think that the field's like moved on quite a bit since then and i think people have realized that Biology is a lot more complicated than we <laughs> we gave it credit for. Um, so no, no matter how complicated your polymers are, how many ligands you put on there, you know how how clever the kind of mechanical behaviour is, um, it's going to be very difficult to do it that way. Right, and yes. I think our understanding of stem cell biology now and how to differentiate cells and how to get how to Try, try to influence biology in a more subtle way to repair itself is probably taking over taking over that field mm-hmm. um <clears throat> so so yeah so the, it was a it was a really good phd i i really i got to work at the kind of interface between chemistry and life sciences spent quite a bit of time doing cell culture and learning all of that for the first time as well which was interesting um but like most but like a lot of people um who do PhDs, I realized, I guess about halfway through that I didn't want to do that forever. Right, yeah. Um, And I didn't want to kind of um, get stuck in the kind of endless cycle of postdocs, which I know is a a big kind of turnoff for lots of people. Um, So, and and, and I, at that time, I was still really keen to kind of 
jump out of university and into a commercial role at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, okay. Um, so one of the really kind of formative things that happened to me during that time was that I was invited to take part in a competition called the Biotechnology Yes Scheme, the Young okay. Entrepreneur yeah. Scheme. Yeah. Um, which again, lo- lots of people, and, and this is something that's still running today, and it's uh, it's a really great competition which takes teams of PhD students and essentially tells them in six weeks time we're going to make you stand in front of a panel of real world experts investors Uh patent attorneys commercial people um, and you need to come up with a business plan for uh, an imaginary but feasible right yeah spin out Um, and you're going to get some training along the way you're going to get to talk to some experts and have you know, surgery sessions with people, but essentially off you go. Um, and this was really my first exposure to the world of startups and spin outs mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of new biotech companies. Um, and it just, it really just opened my eyes to right. the different possibilities, uh, for potential career paths, different roles, um, you know, I, I suppose before that, I had in my mind that you could be, you could be an academic researcher, you could do mm-hmm. postdocs, and maybe you'd be a lecturer, and maybe you'd be a prof, or you could go into industry and you could be a scientist, uh, and maybe become a manager, and maybe you know, and so on. Yeah, climb the greasy pole. But there's this whole world of careers in between, mm. um, which I didn't really know about before. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and and this was sort of the first exposure so doing that um kicked off a few things really so it it, it allowed me to meet a lot of people who mm-hmm. were who were real entrepreneurs real patent attorneys real lawyers um real commercial leaders real investors people mm. you know who were doing the kinds of roles that i didn't realize had existed before um and start to build that network um, but it also gave me the kind of first blueprint for how you take how you take a new idea or a new discovery and turn that into something that somebody can invest money into. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, <clears throat> to to then you know develop that towards a, a product or something useful in the real world. Um, and that experience has really stuck with me ever since. Um, and it's taken quite a bit of time for me to from doing that to get to where I am now and, and yeah, a bit sure. of a, a winding road in between. But um, that's that was really the starting point leading me from where I was in the middle of my PhD to where I am now lead, uh, leading this company. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It, you've touched on something there that I think a lot of people would be interested in your view on, and that is how do you take a new idea and turn it into something investable? And I think, you know, the reason I ask that is, I imagine a lot of people during the course of their PhD or, or wherever they are in their in their sort of research career have an idea at some point and don't know if they've got something, they don't know what to do with it, they don't know um, how to take it forward or whether they should or, or all this kind of stuff. So I appreciate that that's very much what you will have been doing in your tech transfer career. Um, what, what are the things that you saw as key in that in the, in the years that you were doing that were there were there particular things that sort of characterized an idea that was viable or particular steps that that were common to different ideas 
Yeah, so there, there are there are some common things. So, mm. <clears throat> I mean, I should say that during my, uh, so I, just to kind of connect things together. So be, since finishing my PhD, uh, between finishing my PhD and, and now, I did about 10 or maybe a bit more years of different tech transfer roles in different yes. universities. Um, and I, because of um, my fairly broad scientific background, I worked on a very wide range of different technologies, of everything course, yeah. from kind of industrial chemistry to med tech to biotech to, you know, small molecule pharmaceuticals. So th there are different, um, different industries require different things and there are different kind of priorities. Yes. Uh, but the, the fundamental things, I guess, across all of those are that the, the first thing is you, you really need to know that you're solving a real problem. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I sort of keep coming back to this, but um, understanding understanding if there is a real problem out there, if it's a big problem, <laughs> is it some if it's something that people are willing to spend a lot of money to solve, um, and if it's something that affects a very large number of people instead of just you and you know your lab mate. Um, right. next door to you so so that i guess that's the the market opportunity like is mm. it is, is it something that enough people care about and are, enough, are willing to spend enough money on to be worth taking it from where it is now to being a, a product uh, which can be a very long journey especially at the of kind course, of farmer yeah. and biotech end um the so that, that that's one one aspect of it and then taking it from the other end it's have you actually got something that is that is going to make a meaningful difference to solving mm -hmm. that problem? So, um, essentially, is it is it going to be ten times better than anything else that's already out there? Yeah. If it's ten percent better than the current solutions, people probably aren't going to change. They're probably going to stick with yeah. what they know. You really have to have something pretty transformative to get people to switch from what they're doing already to, to your new solution. Um, so yeah, it needs to be much, much better. It needs mm. to be transformative. And then the third aspect is you need to make sure you own it. <laughs> okay, yeah, so good point. You, you need to make sure that, uh, so, so first of all, um, do, is anybody else doing this already? Has anybody else already tried to commercialize this solution? Mm. Maybe somebody else has already got something on the market. That that surprisingly, that's a surprisingly common way that new um, commercial projects fall down from a from a kind of technology transfer point of view. When you're looking at something new, inverted commas that comes in from from a researcher, very often it's not that new once you start right, yeah. searching around a bit. Um, so so that's one thing. It just has somebody done it before. Um, and even if they haven't, is what you're is what you're doing like differentiated enough? You can actually protect it. Mm -hmm. um, so, first of all, do you own it? But also, can you protect it? Can you get some kind of defensibility around your solution? Which means that when you go out and tell people what your solution is and try and sell it to them. Um, they can't just copy you or your competitors can't just come along and copy you. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I guess, yeah, the, 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 the scale of the market, how good your solution is and whether you really own and can protect your solution are the three mm. key things that we would always look for. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and it's, but it's always, 
I would say most important to start from the problem. Like you really right, just need yes. to understand, uh, is this worth it? Is, 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 is anybody really going to care if I, if I solve this problem or not? Yeah. And I suppose you can look at that from different ways, right? You can either find something that a lot of people are willing to spend a bit of money on, or a, a few people are willing to spend a lot of money on or somewhere in the middle, yeah. right? Um, so I guess understanding the, the dynamics or the, the, the demographics almost of the problem you're trying to solve are important as well. Um, yeah. And, and that, that influence is, um, well, yeah, it can, it can have a big influence on how you actually, if, if something does tick those boxes, you yeah. know, what, what is the best way to actually approach trying to commercialize it? So mm -hmm. yeah, do you, if, if, if there really is only one or two big customers, then you don't need to go and build a big BD team or a sales team. Sure. You just need, you know, one good person who can go out and, and sell or, you know, communicate what you've got. Um, if you're if it's a mass market thing then it's a very different proposition mm -hmm. so yeah understanding that understanding how the market breaks down is also pretty important and it's good to know that as early on as possible yeah absolutely <laughs> and and you mentioned earlier as well that um the commercial side of appeal the commercial side of i guess research in general appealed to you from quite early <clears> on <throat> um and perhaps this is something that was in the back of your mind from your conversations with your dad i'm not sure <laughs> but what was it that appealed to you do you think why the commercial end of it um i appreciate you decided you didn't want to be in a lab and and do do that um career path but yeah why why the commercial part what what attracted you to that yeah so i suppose i i should confess really at this point that it wasn't really my plan mm -hmm. <laughs> to do things this way <laughs> Uh, so, so I, you know, I, my intention was still after my PhD to go and find a commercial, go and find a, an industry R and D role. Yeah. Um, but um, when I, so my PhD finished in 2009, which was pretty much at the bottom of the dip of the yes, I remember big, great financial crisis, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, essentially almost all grad school uh, grad schemes just stopped. Yeah. So all of the big companies that I was looking to apply to just weren't hiring at the time. Um, and so I had to, you know, I had to look around for something else. And um, I'd been complaining to one of my supervisors about how, how hard it was to try and find these roles. And, and, uh, and one day he sort of came into the lab office and said, I've got, you know, lots of other students who are making, coming up with new materials all the time to try and, you know, help to grow cells in the lab or to repair bits of tissue and things. And, um, you know, we're, we're quite a big lab. We have material scientists, we have biology, but there are lots of labs out there who just want to do the biology. They just want to do mm. 3D cell culture. They just want to, you know, test the different biological conditions. They don't really care about the materials. Yes. Um, and I've had this idea that we might set up a little company to, you know, sell products to researchers and, and, we might make some money and we can send you on conferences and things. And do you, do you want to give it a go? Because I know you did that, that yes competition thing right. a few years ago and, um, you know, it'll be good for your CV and, and all of these things. And, um, so I said, you know, can, can I get paid <laughs> to do this? And then sort of went back out of the office and then came back again a couple of weeks later with a leaflet, um, for a, an entrepreneurship scheme. Um, called the it's called the Yorkshire Enterprise Fellowship. So I was at based at the University of Sheffield at the time. Right. Yes. And um, the idea was that you could 
you, you got this kind of training program uh, which would fund your salary and you could go on court you could go on I think it was about once a month you go on a day course to learn mm-hmm. about a, a different aspects of entrepreneurship uh, or different aspects of how to set up a company and run a company yeah. so it might be finance or IP or you know corporate structure whatever mm-hmm. uh, but in the meantime you had to work on a real project um, and uh, so we applied for the grants got the money got funded to set up this little university service company um and then uh but i think it was still kind of a part-time role it wasn't it wasn't kind of fully funding me so i was still looking around and then uh he came into the office again you know a few months later and said there's this job come up one of my one of my other roles is that i'm director of the the sheffield healthcare gateway Mm -hmm. and that's um you probably haven't heard of that but what we do is we help researchers to work with industry and we we help them to do collaborative projects and we yeah, help them to you know uh create spin-out companies and all these good things and you, you'll get to meet lots of industry people if you do this and you, you'll learn some new skills and uh and so on and so on and it was a really unattractive job like it was uh <laughs> I think it was 80 percent fec uh, sorry 80 percent um fte yeah uh for eight months um and uh, then there was no more money. Right, uh, yeah. So applied for the job, uh, got the job because I don't think anybody else applied. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was really how I got into the, the tech transfer role in the first place. Um, and again, it was, a, it, was, it was one of those opportunistic things, but it was, it was a really good experience um, because it gave me the chance to work on a really wide range of projects, mm. uh, which I really enjoyed. Um, and it gave me the chance to work on a really wide range of different um, different ways of collaborating between academia and industry. So I got yes. to you know, do the collaborative research stuff. I got to work on licensing opportunities. I got to work on potential spin opportunities. Um, <clears throat> and just learned, how, learned a lot about different types of transactions um, and and this whole process, which we talked a bit about, about how you appraise a project, how you work out whether mm-hmm. something is potentially commercial or not. Um, but it also, it helped me to build the, yeah, build the skill set around uh, how you help these two different communities understand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there, there really is, um, a challenge when it comes to getting university professors to talk to people in industry. It's, sure. it's not universal, but very often it is a difficult thing to do. It's very, mm. it can be difficult for them to understand each other. It can be difficult for them to understand each mo- each other's motivations and right, to yes. be able to work together. Um, so, and having kind of done, done some time in industry and done quite a bit of time within universities, I found that I could talk to people on both sides of this mm-hmm. divide um, and, you know, get them to work together and get them to understand each other. Um, <clears throat> and I suppose a big part of that was helping their, helping the researchers to communicate what they had in terms of kind of benefits and in terms right, of yes. solving problems yeah. um, and, and also helping them to understand things like um, that deadlines are important. Mm. and timelines are important <laughs> and what you promise to deliver is important so yeah. make sure you promise something that you know you can do <laughs> um yeah so 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 
there was a lot of soft skills that kind of came out of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, as I kind of progressed through my tech transfer career, so I, I after about three or four years in Sheffield, I moved on to Leicester yeah. um, to focus pretty much exclusively on on the medical school. Um, and there I got to focus much more on <clears throat> um, translational projects between the kind of medical researchers there and, and Big Pharma. Right. Yeah. Um, so got to, we, we did a really nice deal with GSK through their, um, it's called the discovery partnerships with academia, mm-hmm. which was, um, kind of, it was a big deal in terms of finances, but it was also a really good project, um, for, it, it was a really good experience in terms of seeing how, uh, a pharma company like GSK runs a project, runs a very early sure, stage yeah. discovery project. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, very different to how an internal academic group would run a project as <laughs> you might imagine <laughs> um so so again that was that was pretty formative and it it to, to actually be inside one of those projects and be involved in all of the project review processes and seeing how they how they kind of stage gated things how they decided what the go no go criteria were um yeah the, the whole management approach to running an r&d project was just mm. you know very very interesting and kind of a good education at that time. Yes. Um, but the thing, I guess the, the thing that really got me to move on from there, the thing that made me move from Leicester to Warwick Ventures, which is where I was immediately before this, mm-hmm. um, was I wanted to come almost kind of full circle and start to work on spin outs again. Right. So I, I, I realized that I needed to be somewhere where lots more companies were being formed. Um, and there were just lots more opportunities to get involved with that and to see the whole life cycle of idea, proof of concept, fundraising, investment, business planning, you know, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after, again, about <clears throat> about three years in Leicester, I moved on to Warwick um, after somebody, actually somebody who was at Warwick was about to jump into a spin out that he'd kind of built himself. Um, and he called me up and said, I'm leaving my job's coming up it's a really great place to be you'll earn lots more money um do you want me to put your name forward yeah. <laughs> and it was pretty much as straightforward as that um so yeah moved moved across to warwick and um pretty early on during my time there came across joe and nick and their mm-hmm. their nano syringe project um <clears throat> and um but but that again that was not a quick process. So no, of course, it took something like five years to go from when we first met to having to where we are now to having a company that's funded. Yes, um, which was which was good because it gave me time to do three or four other spin out companies beforehand, <laughs> and and really get good at um, how you do all of the mm-hmm. how how you kind of manage that process, how you raise investment, how you do all the transactional stuff around setting up companies, doing investment agreements and all of that stuff. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that go, go, going to Warwick was just a chance to just do that many, many times. Um, and the reason that it was, a, the reason that it was so easy to do that was because that they were, um, one of the national centers for a an entrepreneurship program called iQ okay uh, which is essentially designed to take 
researchers and turn them into entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it takes people who are finishing up PhDs who think they've got something that might be commercial and it gives them about 30K to go and travel around the world and ask the question, is this a big enough problem? Yes. And does my solution solve it? Um, and then at the end of that program, um, if the answer to those two questions is yes, and you own it, um, you can get some investment, you can get some mm-hmm. innovative funding to get started. Um, so I kind of made a little industry of <laughs> finding new projects and putting them through this program. Right, yes. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we did uh, four or five companies in about, about three years through the program. And they're all still running today, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that really, yeah, the one that I really wanted to jump into full time was was always this one. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, after after a few knockbacks and after being, you know, having having to go back and build the data set some more, get some more grant funding, uh, we got there, we got the financing in place, and then things all really kicked off. You know, towards the end of last year. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that brings us back up to today, of course. Um, and so having been through that career that you've just described and seen all the different companies that you've seen as, as part of that, and I know you've sat on various boards and, um, and done that as part of your role as well. Um, <clears throat> and then from the first few months of being full-time with, with Narrow Syrinx as well, almost a year now, um, is there anything that you would sort of identify as a key piece of advice if someone was starting out or if you were starting out on this again something you is there something you wish you'd known back then that you know now or or just a a lesson that you've learned that's been particularly useful for you um yeah i think i I think the main thing is to have uh so it's it's important to have a plan it's important to know where you think you want to be but it's almost more important to be prepared to break that when something sure, good comes yeah. along um so i, I think in, in terms of uh, looking for an your next career move um the thing i would the thing i would always try to focus on the most is what what is it that i can learn by mm-hmm. moving to this next organization so what what, what skills can i learn who can I meet? Which new networks can yeah. I break into? Um, and what will it allow me to do? What new experiences will it allow me to get that that's going to propel me on to the next level after that? Yes. Um, and I suppose h- how you decide what those experiences need to be. Um, I take a lot of inspiration from following other people's career paths. Mm-hmm. So um so your your podcast is great because you get to see <laughs> um or you get to hear in a very short space of time how people got to where they are yes true um and it's very reassuring to hear that most people got to where they are through serendipity yeah uh, or through you know it, it wasn't a, it wasn't their plan it things things happen in life yes. opportunities come and go and and you you need to grab the good ones when they come along uh so so yeah i i um Understanding other people's career paths, look, looking at how they got to where they got to. Um, also, you know, if you see a if you see a job advert somewhere for um, your kind of dream job in ten years time, 
save that job advert, right? Look yeah. at what the look at what the requirements are for the role. Look at what the experience is that the that the recruiter is looking for, and use those things to help you map out where you need to go in the next two years and the next mm-hmm. five years. Um, and I think that that's that's helped me decide in many cases like which things I need to do next to get to where I want to get to. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's a a really good practical piece of advice. I think um, I haven't thought that one before and it's it's a really useful one to start with because as you say, it gives you some more, you're not just relying on your own feeling about what you need to do next. It's, well, this is what people are looking for for someone to do this now. And of course, things might change over a period of time, right? But you should at least be going broadly in the right direction if you if you use that as a guide yeah and i suppose the 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 slight caveat to that is that um you shouldn't wait until you think you're an expert in everything yes before trying to make before applying for that role or before trying to make the jump into a new industry or a new a new yeah a new role Mm. um because uh yeah, job, job adverts kind of tell you what people are ideally looking for. That's their kind of dream candidate. Maybe maybe you're going to get your dream candidate if you're hiring, but very often um, that person doesn't exist. Yes. Right? <laughs> so I, I, you, I can, you, I can you, attest to that, yes. Um, <laughs> so it's always worth, like, if something looks really exciting, if something looks like your dream role, you should go for it. Mm. And the worst thing that's going to happen is you get told why you fell short. You know, you, you've got to push for the feedback maybe to find it out, but yeah. um, you might end up with a yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I think what, one of the things that I maybe have, maybe I've waited too long, you know, maybe I could have jumped earlier and progressed earlier if I didn't wait to have every tick on the box you know, every tick in the box to be able to move on to that yeah. next role. It's, it's um, a really interesting one. I think, you know, we, we often have conversations with people about their career where they say exactly what you've said, you know, I, I want to do this sort of job in three years time or five years time or 10 years time. And they'll, they'll stop themselves for applying for it because of that, because they, they were going to do it in five years rather than now. Um, where, where we will, you know, often talk to them about this and go, look, they'll, they'll consider you now. So why why wait five years? And people get very set on the timelines that they set in their own mind. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you've got nothing to lose, right? It, at, at worst, you don't get the job. And right now, you've not got the job. So you know, <laughs> nothing's, nothing's changed, right? Yeah, it's a really good piece of advice. Um, so James, it's an, it's an exciting time for you and for Nanosyrinx. And um, I'm sure there's a... There's plenty of things ahead. What's next? What's on the agenda at the moment? <clears throat> yeah, so so the, the next thing really is that we need to we need to deliver our plan. <laughs> so we we spent a long time building a plan. We spent a long time persuading people to invest in the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent quite a long time building the team now to deliver yeah. the plan, and we've we've got a really good team uh, pulled together. Uh, so now we yeah we're, we're working really hard to really um build out the platform uh to be able to really manipulate all the different moving parts um so that we can create these different therapeutic candidates and, and mm-hmm. test them in different disease models 
Um, and then, so that, that's really been the focus of our first year post-investment. And then going into the second year, the focus is really all about proving in a few different um, disease areas that we can actually have some kind of therapeutically relevant effect. Yes. So we're not promising to develop product number one, or drug candidate number one. Um, we're promising that we'll we'll develop some different proof of concept examples across different disease areas. Um, and if we've done our jobs properly, those will be things that potential pharma partners and potential series A investors care about enough to, to come in later. Um, but it's all about just demonstrating the kind of utility of the platform, mm -hmm. showing that it can be applied across some fairly broad, um, broad types of payloads, uh, broad types of cells, broad types of disease areas. Um, and then, you know, very quickly, you know, very, very soon, I suppose, going into next year, the focus will switch towards starting to build the consortium to fund our Series A. Yes. So we know that's going to be quite a long process. Um, we know there's a lot more planning to do. Mm -hmm. um, we know that we're going to have to scale quite rapidly to develop the company once we go beyond that. Um, so, so, yeah, that a big part of my role going forward is going to be starting to map that out um and continuing to have all the conversations to make sure we build the right plan to be yes, funded next time around um yeah so it's it's a really exciting time we've uh we've got you know we've got a great board we've got a great team um and we just we just need to deliver now we need the science to yeah. keep working and we need to do the right things yeah makes sense well it, it's an incredibly <laughs> impactful problem that you're solving and uh it's a fascinating approach so we wish you the best of luck with it and thank you so much for for joining us thank you it's been a pleasure thanks for joining us on careers in discovery and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and r d do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.